Welcome to the Dead Celebrities Podcast. In this podcast, we break down high-profile celebrity estate planning cases for advisors and their clients. Most celebrity estate catastrophes are based on the same issues that everyday people face, just with the volume turned up. Our goal is to identify and extract the individual estate planning issues that lie at the heart of each story. We then discuss what advisors should expect and how to avoid common pitfalls. Hosted by WealthManagement.com Senior Editor David Lenick. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Celebrity Estate Planning Podcast presented by WealthManagement.com. My name is David Lenick, and I'm a Senior Editor with Wealth Management and Trust in Estates. For those of you who are new to the podcast, each episode focuses on a single celebrity estate, be it a planning snafu, a familiar fight, or even just a good example of the power of proper planning. And from that high-profile and often ridiculous example, myself and a guest attempt to boil the example down to some lessons that advisors can use with their more typical clients. The idea being that celebrity estates, though the details are often more bombastic, generally face the same obstacles and issues as those of regular people, just with the volume kind of turned up, uh, which makes them interesting and valuable case studies. Uh, This week, we're throwing a bit of a curveball. Previously, we featured mostly estate planning professionals, largely lawyers. However, uh, our guest this week is a doctor. So Dr. Stanley Teitelbaum has been practicing clinical psychology for more than 35 years. Uh, Since 1980, he's been a training analyst and senior supervisor and faculty member at the Postgraduate Center for Mental Health and also the Training Institute for Mental Health, both in New York City. Uh, He's a founder of the Contemporary Center for Advanced Psychoanalytic Studies in New Jersey and also the author of numerous books, including Illusion and Disillusionment. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Teitelbaum. Thank you. My pleasure. And uh, today, our celebrity is, uh, we're going to talk about one of the old Hollywood sort of biggest names, biggest stars, Joan Crawford. Uh, Joan Crawford made more than 80 films, and she won an Oscar for Best Actress in 1946 for a performance in Mildred Pierce. Uh, Famously prickly, (laughs) Joan was a Part of perhaps the greatest feud in the golden age of Hollywood with Betty Davis. Uh, it's once reported that Davis once said of her, the best time I ever had with Joan Crawford was when I pushed her down the stairs and whatever happened to David Jane. Crawford was married three times to Douglas Fairbanks Jr., French Chauton, I'm sure I have butchered that name, Philip Terry, and Pep- Pepsi-Cola president Alfred Steele. Unable to have children, she adopted and raised four of them, Christina, Christopher, and then twin girls, Catherine, Kathy, and Cynthia, Cindy. Uh, her relationships with Christopher and Christina were fraught with difficulty and resulted in estrangement. Christopher's last contact with her came in 1962, while Christina last spoke with her in 1968. Crawford herself died in 1977 of liver cancer, and she left an estate value of around $2 million. In October of 1976, she had made a will, leaving a trust fund of $77,500 to both Kathy and Cynthia, and then $35,000 to her longtime friend and secretary, Betty Barker. And she made many smaller bequests to a few other people and some money to her favorite charities. Uh, the will did state specifically that Christina and Christopher had been knowingly and deliberately left out. Uh, it, quote, it's my intention to make no provision herein for my son Christopher or my daughter Christina for reasons which are well known to them. And it turns out Crawford just couldn't understand why it turned out so badly with the two older children. She once lamented, I couldn't make them love me, but they could have shown some respect which I think is a bit instructive as to her mindset. Along with the trust fund, Kathy also inherited all of Joan's property, including the 1946 Oscar from Mildred Pierce, which sold for $426,000 in 1993 at auction. Christina and Christopher unsurprisingly contested the will, arguing that due to Joan's heavy drinking, she lacked the requisite testamentary capacity and had been unduly influenced by Kathy and her husband to change the will in their favor. The estate eventually settled with Christopher and Christina and each received $27,500. Um, following Joan's death, Christina wrote the best-selling book, Mommy Dearest, 
Uh, it was the first tell-all celebrity memoir, which discussed openly a psychologically and physically abusive childhood. It's a cultural phenomenon, and it stayed at the top of the New York Times bestseller list for 42 weeks. It was also later turned into a cult classic film in 1981, which is most notable for bringing the phrase no-wire hangers into the common lexicon. Regardless of Crawford's pugnacious reputation, uh, sort of unequal inheritances like this are, uh, and even downright disinheritance, these aren't limited to the halls of Hollywood royalty. And they're very common issues among every type of client, so many advisors are going to cross these. Um, Dr. Teitelbaum, in your experience, what, what do you think, you know, where do these sort of things come from? Yeah, I, you know, just uh, one further note on Joan Crawford. It was interesting, you mentioned uh, a third marriage to Mrs. Steele, who was the president of Pepsi-Cola. And upon his death, she became the president of Pepsi-Cola. <laughs> so she, you know, she was a very, very successful woman in, in film and in the world of business. The thing that you mentioned was respect. The thing about respect kind of uh, bridges that her, her concern about her children could have shown more respect, and that's why she chose to disinherit them. That bridges a, a number of um, emotional reactions that many clients have when they're considering either unequal distributions or disinheriting. Things like disappointments, things like the lack of appreciation, uh, things like uh, unresolved conflicts that have never really been dealt with uh, sufficiently, and and respect. I call that the Daru syndrome, D A R U, uh, the Daru syndrome. And the among the uh, clients that I get to see as a uh, as a psychologist, they come into a number of uh, uh, typical ca- categories. One category has to do with the the feeling that uh, the client is considering unequal distributions or disinheritance because of this element of disrespect, and that has simmered within them for a very long time. And it relates to their feelings of vulnerability, their feelings of helplessness, and their feelings of resentment and anger. And uh, by crafting a, uh, an estate plan with a will that uh, goes in the direction of inequality or disinheritance, it becomes, in a sense, a... Uh, a payback mm-hmm. for the hurt that uh, that the client has experienced over over usually over a number of uh, years or periods. So that's one one category. The the uh, second category of people that I get to see psychologi- with psychological issues has to do with their concerns about if I go forward with my thoughts, with my plan, with my decision about disinheriting one of my one or more of my ear- heirs or unequal distributions, will that create harm among my heirs? Will that create ill feelings, bad feelings among the heirs? And that, that you know, becomes a very uh, tormenting process for many clients that have a lot of difficulty in uh, sorting that out and coming to some conclusion with that. And that's where counseling sessions uh, tend to be very helpful. Uh, the third category of the people that I get to see with with uh, these issues have to do with couples who are uh, between the two of them are not on the same page. Mm-hmm. So it's not unlikely. It often does happen that you know one uh, one parent feels one way about how to proceed with uh, unequal or, or equal distributions, and the other parent has very different reaction or very different preference for that. And so that uh, often creates a lot of uh, disharmony in their relationship, and that's uh, often one of the things that gets them to come to see a, you know, a mental health practitioner. 
uh, parenthetically, I've, I found in working with couples, it's a very difficult thing often for couples to get to do. And there have been some studies that show that uh, couples in conflict often wait sometimes as long as eight years before they pick up the phone wow. to make that first appointment uh, with, a, uh, with a psychologist to help them uh, with their issues. So, you know, we mentioned at sort of the very start of this, these concepts of respect and disrespect. And so these are all, it seems like they're all very nebulous sort of motivations in their way. And then that it's, um, you know, the, almost like even the, uh, the person themselves doesn't really, can't really explain why they're doing what they're doing. So they, they resort to this sort of nebulous term, terminology of respect or disrespect or this person was nice to me or not nice to me. Obviously, most uh, estate planners, most financial advisors are going to be psychoanalyzing their clients. They're not sort of prepared right. or trained to do that. Right. So um, what can they do or what can they look for you know, when, when sort of faced with, with the specter of, of these unequal inheritances to try to smooth the road and, and to make things so it's not you know, a huge fight? Well, what I find is that when the estate planners um, relate to these clients in, and it, what comes out becomes somewhat nebulous, like you say, the, the task at hand is to make what's, what sounds nebulous somewhat less nebulous. And that is not necessarily all that complicated for the estate planner to do. It's very complicated for the estate planner to work with and resolve. But oftentimes the client that comes to the estate planner with this kind of situation, in contrast to the nebulousness, is ready to spill. <laughs> They've been sorting this out. and They have hurts. They have disappointments that have gone back for a very long period of time. And so uh, the, uh, the estate planner can begin to ask a little more questions, not, not to pursue it deeply because that's not his or her province, but to, to ask some more questions such as, you know, well, when did this start? How far back does this go? What is the history of your hurts and, and your disappointments? You know, do, how much anxiety do you have about it? Do you lose sleep over it? These are all questions not only that the therapist like myself will ask the client, but initially the estate planner as well can begin to uh, touch on some of those uh, questions, which will give him and the client a better grasp on the magnitude of the problem uh, at hand. One of the one of the categories that I mentioned earlier that, that comes up a lot is like uh, an, an example of what's not nebulous. I, I get this very frequently is uh, a situation where a client is very upset or angry or resentful toward uh, a particular uh, a particular heir, a particular child. And that often has to do with the child and that child's marriage. Mm -hmm. A not uncommon scenario uh, that, that I've seen frequently is a, a source of conflict between the mother and the daughter-in-law. So that in which the, the mother uh, feels that the daughter-in-law, complicit with her son, have distanced, her, have distanced themselves from the mother. And, and this harbors a lot of resentment in the mother, mostly toward the daughter-in-law, but also toward the son for not having stepped up more, for not having you know, participated more in working out a better situation with his wife uh, in order to, you know, to keep or maintain a better relationship with the wife. And, so a feeling know, of betrayal of the family. That's kind of right, thing. a feeling of betrayal. Uh, from the son, but of uh, of disrespect in disrespect. a sense from the daughter-in-law, and you know, I'm reminded of you know that old expression uh, that goes, uh, you know, a daughter is a daughter 
for the rest of her life. A son is a son until he finds a wife. <laughs> and so many of these situations that I'm describing have to do with, you know, the sons who uh, are married to someone who doesn't have particular fondness for a mother-in-law, and that gets displayed, and that creates a lot of conflict for the for the parent, in this case the mother that I'm describing, and she harbors this and, and doesn't have a palatable way to address that or to make it better. And so ultimately, um, she may resort to some desire or some wish, some plan to pay back, you know, to express her, her anger and resentment toward the daughter-in-law and toward the son uh, who have disrespected her in these ways by creating an estate plan that, uh, you know, doesn't treat them equally with other siblings, other children, other heirs, uh, or, or in some more drastic extremes, disinheriting one or more of, of their children. Mm. So you know, this is a problem. Um, you know, we've been talking about it from the side of you know, your client, especially as an advisor. If I'm an advisor and my client comes in. Um, but this is a two-sided problem. Right? There's this whole aspect of the people who aren't my client who are, are embroiled in this as well, the son and the daughter or whoever happens to be doing the disrespecting. At what point is it appropriate or is it ever appropriate to attempt to bring the group together? and resolve these things. Because it seems as if a lot of the outrage and these conflicts at the end stem from a combination of, you know, not understanding why they're being disinherited, the surprise of the disinheritance, and then just the fact that they're being disinherited. So there's sort of three problems, there's a lot that goes into it. Um, It seems like maybe trying to bring the family in to talk about it will head some of these things off, maybe not all. Uh, At what point is that appropriate? Yes, it can be appropriate, and and it uh, can be very useful you know, let's think of it as a, um, a process of steps, and I think uh, the first step would uh, be the uh, the estate planner to make, to make an assessment that uh, you know something is happening here. There's some major issue here, some major conflict here that needs to be pursued with a mental health counselor, with a, a practitioner like myself, for example, and and to be able to normalize that for the client by way of saying, you know, these issues, what you're struggling with is not unusual. This happens all the time in many different ways. So, you know, I'm going to recommend that you have some counseling sessions and don't think of that in any way as a, you know, a statement of your mental health. It's very common. It's very normal to have these kind of questions. So step two is for the uh, client or clients, uh, if, if it's a couple, to be able to go to a mental health uh, professional and discuss and explore uh, the history and some of the roots of, of these issues. Along the way, when, when that is accomplished, it may also, in response to your question, it may then also be very useful to suggest that we bring in the other people, bring in the other family members, to bring in the heir in question so that maybe there's an opportunity to better deal with the unresolved issues before you go to any final conclusion or any final decision. Now, bringing them in is in no way a promise to the heir that you're going to do what they want necessarily, but to be able to, once again, try to resolve issues which often case have not been comfortably sorted out or, or dealt with. So, uh, so I think that uh, that needs to be uh, an option in the mix. So, you know, it seems as if 
you know, pretty obvious the estate planner or the advisor should not be tackling this on their own. Right. They, they could get to know their own client, but then once they realize there's a problem, it's time to reach out to, to, to the pros. Well, well, the more the estate planner could be aware of the kind of issues that we're outlining today, the more he could feel or she can feel comfortable in making this recommendation. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, in a sense, it becomes part of a team between the estate planner and the uh, and the psychologist to be able to be most helpful uh, to the client. Uh, one of the issues, I'm interested in your question because it doesn't always come up about, well, what about the rest of, what about having sessions not just with the client but also with the heirs? And one of the things that also uh, comes up in the mix is that clients often have some concerns about the, the decision that they're thinking about in terms of how much will my heir, my son or my daughter, approve or disapprove of my decision. And that's something that often go, goes pretty deep in the history of the client because you know when we're kids and we're growing up, we, we very much want or need the approval of our parents. But very frequently, that very need gets transferred, we call it transference uh, psychologically, but that need gets transferred onto our children. And so people sometimes get caught up in how much will my child, my heir, approve or disapprove of my decision, and then that becomes another factor to, to be sorted out and resolved. Ultimately, the clients need to find a way to also be fair to themselves mm-hmm. in terms of how they're sorting this out and what makes sense to them and how much of the decision is based on emotional decisions and how, many, how much of the decisions is based on logical considerations. For example, if there are two uh, children and there are, let's say, uh, $2 million in the estate, uh, in, instead of uh, designating $1 million to each child, which is the uh, equal option, and very often that's the simplest option. Not enough scare quotes in the world for equal there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, 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 you know, that, that's easy and, uh, and hopefully dispute-free, but it's not always the, the, the most meaningful or the, or the best solution because one child may be, and, and I can't tell you how often this happens, uh, t- two heirs are not equal in their level of um, financial success. So it's very common that one child may be more financially successful in, in the business world, for example, while the other child is a school teacher and living on a moderate, more moderate financial economic situations. Uh, or that one child, uh, in another situation, one child is uh, doing pretty well, but the other child has some health issues, significant medical needs, and, uh, and may need more financial help in relating to that. So, you know, these uh, are among some of the more logical reasons for considering unequal distributions, even if it's not the most uh, easy or most popular thing to mm-hmm. be doing. And I think it's a good thing to bring up, right? I mean, we spend a lot of time talking about these situations where there's some sort of animus involved and it's a punishment. And, um, you know, I think more often it's going to come up in this situation where maybe one child was the caregiver and the other wasn't and kind of put more in. Mm-hmm. And it's not a sign of I love this one child more than the other, but it's that like this child was there for me more or this child needs it more and then, you know, financially than the one you put in. And that there's no animus. That you know, They're trying to be as equitable as possible where if one child needs it and the other one doesn't, well, is it equitable to give them the same amount? Um, I think that is a lot of times the more common situation that comes before estate planning attorneys and in ways the more difficult to work out because, I mean, there, there is no animus that you can try to solve there, right? I mean, how do, how do you work with that? Yeah, if, if, there's, if there's no animus, uh, 
if there's no animus, you go back to the previous point, but then it becomes easier to just you know do an equal distribution. Mm -hmm. But if the uh, if the client is considering uh, the circumstances of each of the heirs, then it may they they may move more in the direction of an unequal distribution, and uh, and that may create animus among the heirs, mm -hmm. uh, regardless of the logical situation. You know. Now, I, I know one, uh, one estate planner that runs into this very frequently, and uh, he, has, uh, he has come across a pretty uh, good solution, I think. I, I, I'm, you know, I'm not a, a estate planner or a financial advisor. I'm a psychologist. But this has stayed with me because he, he considers the example of uh, designating equal portions to two heirs, let's say, in that, in that uh, situation. Equal portions to two heirs, but a third portion which is designated for health issues, you know, whether it's uh, physical health or mental health or whatever the health issues, that becomes a health fund to be used by the person who may have more um, health needs or, or the other person who in the future may, may find they have uh, more medical or health needs. So that becomes one way for a planner or an advisor to, um, you know, to sort that out and, and to work with the uh, clients on that issue. Yeah. Well, imagine. Uh, one other thing I would uh, introduce there is, you know, the, uh, we often think uh, emotionally or psychologically about uh, conditional love versus unconditional love. And, you know, it's very, very nice to think about, well, you know, I love my children and I love my children equally and I have unconditional love to my children. But, you know, in, in the real world, there probably is no, you know, unconditional love doesn't, fully exist 100%. There are always issues. There are always things that go on that uh, get introduced into the relationship that may not necessarily allow the client or the parent to maintain a position of unconditional love because children will do things that upset the parent. Um, or uh, what, what, where I'm heading with this is that you know our world, our world is changing so quickly now, which means that there are so many more options that people that in, in our uh, conversation here today, uh, that uh, children, that heirs, there are so many, so many more options that they have in uh, how they're going to pursue their lifestyle, who they're going to marry, or what lifestyle they want to pursue. There's so many, so many more uh, open possibilities for that. And as a result, that creates many more possibilities for disappointment on the part of the parent as to how my son or my daughter is uh, determining to, to live his life. And so that feeds into uh, more issues around unconditional love and, and the resentments. And, uh, and you know, ha I'm thinking also about the, you know, the Jerry Lewis uh, situation that uh, you had mentioned to me off, uh, off target and how with uh, one of his sons, you know, he's, uh, who he would have disinherited except he died, but Lewis had said, well, he's a dope addict, and he so, you know, dismissed him because in his mind, being a dope addict meant he didn't deserve to get any uh, any financial backing from me because that money would go more toward his uh, his fix rather than toward helping him. Mm -hmm. You mentioned um, a lot of the users sort of having issues that uh, are outside the purview necessarily of uh, above the pay grade in the way of your typical advisor on you know, financial advisors and, and estate planners and wealth managers in general sort of are always talking about collaborative effort, and, you know, and especially as you go higher up the net worth scale, your clients expect more and more complete 
um, advice from you. And, and so, but I don't think that many estate planners or many advisors have a uh, psychotherapist on file that they can refer a, a client to. Is there anywhere, is there a central database, is there a good source to find, you know, if I'm an advisor and I see this and I realize this is beyond my, you know, I've gotten as much out of this as I can, but this is beyond my ability to try to fix this family, but I don't know who to send them to. Is there some, how do I find, you know, a a mental health professional? I think the problem is not in how to find someone because we're we're very easy to find. (laughs) Uh, And there are many organizations or societies, uh, I belong to a number, you know, American Psychological Association, New York uh, and New Jersey Psychological Association, and so forth. There are many uh, ways to find a therapist. The, the important question is for the advisor or the planner to be aware of this possibility, to mm-hmm. be aware that it, it's useful, it could be helpful, and that it could be a step in collaborating. They, uh, it's not often part of their uh, thinking that collaboration is going to work. And sometimes even there is a concern in which an advisor may feel threatened that if I send this client to a, uh, you know, to a mental health person, uh, I may lose some of my connection uh, to the client. It becomes somewhat territorial. Mm-hmm. So uh, collaboration is extremely useful, but the, uh, the, uh, the advisor it really has to start with the advisor. It, it comes first from the advisor to have the awareness that this is a step in the right direction and then to know how to pitch that, to know how to uh, convey that and explain that uh, to the client in a way that can become more helpful. Mm-hmm. Well, we're running out of time. Thanks so much uh, for joining me today, Dr. Teitelbaum. This has been really sort of a very interesting conversation and certainly uh, outside what we normally uh, do on this podcast. And uh, that's really all we got here. So uh, do you have any sort of parting remarks, any sort of ways, you know, something the last thing that advisors should know about these disinheritances or... That, that it's very normal, that you need to be able to work with your client in a way that has compassion for their problem and to have empathy with it and to proceed with them in a, in a non-judgmental attitude and uh, to normalize the conflict and to be able to tactfully introduce the notion that uh, this can be more advanced. We can work this out in a better way for you if you can make yourself also available to consider having a uh, consultation or a number of consultations with a mental health professional. Mm -hmm. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Teitelbaum. And uh, for our listeners, we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Dead Celebrity Podcast. Click the subscribe button below to become notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of InformaWealthManagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.